Welcome to One Cause Church. Here is another inspirational message from Senior Pastor Eric Holler. Seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And so at first I'm going to call upon Pastor Jeremiah, who was just up here, to begin. And then we'll have our other preachers come along. But today you're going to hear from Jeremiah Land. You're going to hear from Steve Bolden. You're going to hear from Carl Van Wy. You're going to hear from Brian Gray. You're going to hear from Heather Holler. You're going to hear from Eric Ortenblad. And then also you're going to hear from me. So we're going to take about four or five minutes each and on each saying. All right? Are you ready? All right. Can, can we let these guys feel like we want this to happen today? All right. Amen. All right. Pastor Jeremiah, come. No timer. All right, here we go. Well, welcome again. We're so glad that y'all are here. The first saying that Jesus said when he got on the cross was in Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's interesting at the very moment that he's on the cross, the very first word that he says is Father. The very, very first word his father. And he wants to make a direct correlation to let you know at this moment, at this pinnacle of history that's happening, that he is 100% God and he's 100% man. In the moment of his pain, in the moment of his weakness, in the moment of struggle, in the moment right here, the first word that he says is father. And he wants to encourage you and let you know that the very first word that you should ever utter out of your mouth when you're going through pain, when you're going through tribulation, when you're going through anything in your life should not be, oh, woe is me. Oh, this really hurts. This really isn't fun. Why is this happening? It should be calling upon your father. Father, it says in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son so that you can freely cry, Abba. Father. So the very first word, the very first phrase that Jesus utters on the cross is he's calling out to his Father. The next thing that we see is he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Well, who's he saying forgive to? Who are they? First, he's talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees because just a little bit before, a couple hours before, they're standing in front of Pontius Pilate and they're saying, release Barabbas, crucify him. But they utter this small little phrase, in Matthew 27, 25, they say his blood being Jesus, his blood on us and our children, his blood. Now, if you read the scriptures in any time, front to back, God has a little thing with blood. Him and blood are pretty close, and especially when you're talking about Jesus's blood. So he doesn't forget when you say his blood is on us and our children, God says, all right, I'm going to pay that. But no, Jesus says, no, wait, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But he's also saying, Father, forgive the Gentiles, forget the Romans, for what they're doing as well. Because Jesus at this moment is establishing a new covenant where he's allowing not only the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, but he's also allowing the Gentiles to come into this. And so he's saying this blanket statement of, Father, forgive them. Forgive them all. And he's opened it in access for you and for me. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So the very first statement that Jesus is making is saying, God, I'm in between you and humanity, and I'm saying forgive them. Do not hold their sin charged to them. Do not hold this against them. I am standing up for them. Forgive them. And the last phrase that we see, do not 
for they do not know what they do. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, which, which none of the rulers of their age know, for had they known, they would not have crucified him. For had they known, they would not have crucified him. So he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I feel like there's this underlying thing that Jesus is saying almost sarcastically to Satan. You think you've won, but you have no idea what you're about to open. I can see it almost just a small smirk as he's on the cross, as he says, you think you know, but you have no idea what you've just done. Whenever me and my wife were coming home from San Angelo on a Christmas holiday, we got pulled over in a small town for speeding. And the cop comes up, and he has that moment. We have broken the law. He has the decision right then and there. Does he allow us to go free, or does he pass judgment? Does he allow us to go free, or does he pass judgment? And he's the only one that can decide. And he showed us mercy, and he let us go. And never forget this statement right here, where Jesus had the moment to say, Father, hold this against them. Father, don't ever forgive them. Father, don't ever forget what they said. But the very first word he said was, Father, forgive them. You have been forgiven. Don't ever forget it. All right, so you can keep your Bible to Luke. We're going to go to Luke 23, 43, but I'm going to back it up a verse. And he, the criminal, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Such a, a, an amazing statement of two criminals on either side of Jesus that start this crucifixion process by just degrading him. Oh, you're the son of God. Oh, if this is true, save all of us. Destroy everybody. Let's get this thing taken care of. And as it progresses, the one continues in that, but the other goes, don't you fear God? This man deserves nothing. We're under condemnation, but this man doesn't deserve this. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that moment, Jesus holds true to his own words. In John 3, 16 and 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we never read the, the second verse to that. If, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And so he tells this criminal who has no right, who has no purpose in saying, I still am confused on who you are, but remember me. But that moment of faith of saying, Jesus, you're the Son of God, I believe in you, allows him to come boldly before the throne to say, save me. And in that moment, Jesus just looks at him and goes, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And I find it amazing because one of the last things Jesus ever says is a promise. And he looks at him and he says, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give you a promise. And as I was praying about that, I got this glimpse of Jesus getting to the gates of hell and saying, just hold on. You guys have been in here for so far eternity, you can wait just another minute. And all of a sudden, this criminal starts coming down. And Satan's going, woohoo, there's another one for me. And God goes, no, that, that one's mine. No, he was a criminal. He, he broke the law. He was a Jew who broke God's law, and therefore he's mine. 
And Jesus just smiles and goes, yeah, but he had a promise. My great-grandfather lived to be 93 years old and probably one of the worst individuals I'd ever known in my life. He had everything from affairs to addictions. Uh, during the Great Depression, he ran the black market in most of Minnesota. Um, I still have three full ration stamp books that he somehow had. Wasn't supposed to, but he did. And my great-grandmother, my great his wife, was the complete opposite. She was the first woman to graduate Bethel Seminary in St. Paul with a church secretary degree. And she always said, growing up, I told God, you can't take him until he believes. You can't have him until he gives his life. And my grandmother passed away when I was in uh, junior high. And for five long years, he continued down the exact same road. He had physically built churches because he ran a crane service. So he had set arches in huge churches, and the pastors would try to minister, and he'd go, just pay me. I don't care. And on a Sunday afternoon in November, he looked and said, I think I need to make this right. And so my father, my grandfather, and I gathered around him, and he accepted Jesus at 93 years old. And by Friday at 10.30 a.m., he was gone. When you have a promise, it doesn't matter how long it takes to manifest. The promise is yes and amen. We have that ability to go before the throne of grace to say, you promised and you're faithful. And in that moment, we can stand sure-footed, bow our chest to the devil and say, you might have all of that in the world, but you don't have this. You might have someone else's bank account, but not mine. You might have given someone else a disease, but by his stripes I'm healed. I have a promise. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Mark fifteen thirty four, And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is tra translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got to wonder what the thief who was just promised paradise is thinking at this moment, right? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got to be like, oh man, wait, we got to talk. I need some more information, homie. You just told me I'm going to be with you in paradise. Now you're crying out, right? I was thinking about that and it, it kind of made me laugh. And then I thought about it a little bit more and I realized Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And in that moment, the thief is probably looking at nothing more than a hanging piece of meat. I mean, Jesus is probably pretty unrecognizable. But he still looked at him and said, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that when I'm done, I want to be with you. I want to be where you're going to be. I want to follow you. So I don't know what this is, but I'm holding on to that promise because, yeah, you're my guy. I'm following you. And in that moment, I just want to take you to that for a minute, if you will, because this is the moment. This is the moment, right? We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. This is the moment. This is the moment of separation. 
And there's nothing that can prepare you for this moment. We're told in Hebrews 5.8 that Christ had to learn disobedience, that he was perfected through the cross. Because the thing is, there's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? He knew, but he had yet to know. And this is the moment when he knew. This is the moment when he was tested. This is the moment when he was perfected. This is the moment that he knew was coming that was killing him in the garden, that the angels had to come and strengthen him to get him to this moment. And this is the moment. Because God, being a good and just God, has to punish sin. Good and evil cannot exist at the same time in the same person, can't, right? God, if he's truly good, God, if he's truly just, has to punish sin. And this isn't a charade. This isn't pretend, right? This isn't a wink, wink, you're going to die on the cross, but hey, we all know the ending to this story. No, no, no. This has to be real. He has to actually punish sin to be a good God. And this is the moment when Christ actually had to become sin in order to be punished, in order for God to be a good God, in order for the price to be paid and the debt to be settled. This is the moment. Make no mistake, Christ was forsaken. Make no mistake, God and the Son were separated at this moment. They had been together since the beginning of time. They had built all of this together. They had planned all of this together. God who is love, God who is truth, God who is justice, God who is mercy. He and the Son had never been apart until now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know why he asked why. I've asked a lot of different people. Maybe he was shocked by the overwhelming nature of it, you know, because nothing prepares you for this. There's no dress rehearsal for that. There's, there's nothing you can do, right? Maybe it's because when we experience that kind of separation and pain and loss, all we can do is ask why, you know? Maybe, maybe it's because innocent blood always cries out. Abel's blood cried out when it was spilled. And now Christ, the innocent man who's being punished for something he never did, is crying out why. I don't know why he asked why, but what I do know is that he knows. Wherever you've been, whatever pain you've felt, whatever loss, whatever separation, however forsaken you've ever felt, he knows. He knows. Because He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become righteousness. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was forsaken so that you and I never would be. And you need to know that, that this is the moment. This is when it happened. This is when the father had to turn away from the son. Had to. Couldn't happen any other way. So that you and I could be forgiven so that you and I can be made whole, so that the Father would never, never be able to turn his backs on us. However lost you've ever felt, however broken you've ever been, however forsaken, (laughs) nothing like this. And here's the beautiful part. We have a God who knows. Good. All right, we'll turn to John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. This is the second time that one of the sayings is aimed at a specific person, the first being to the thief on the cross, 
where Jesus is making sure that he is taking people with him uh, that he will see in heaven. John chapter 19, 26 and 27. I find it interesting, you know, you, you, you know John is, as being the favorite disciple. It took me uh, several years of Bible reading to realize that he is uh, labeled the disciple in which Jesus loved in the Gospel of John that he wrote. And so he had made a very bold statement every time he spoke about his relationship with Jesus that he is this disciple that Jesus loved. But here it says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So apparently John was right. Jesus did love him. Because at this moment, Jesus, knowing that he is no longer going to be able to care for his mother, he puts the care of his mother in the hands of John. And this is where we see Jesus emphasize relationships. He didn't pass the care of his mother on to one of his siblings. And I find that interesting because sometimes your blood relationships are not the best option for close, close fellowship. Amen? Some of us... Some of us were born into great families, and some of us not so much. But that's why you're in church, and that's what's good about the family of God, is that the blood that we share is stronger and thicker and more powerful than the DNA that we might share with our families. Um, I have three kids, most of you know, that I gave birth to and that I've raised, but I have a lot of people that I mother. Some of them call me mom. Some of them just call me when they need something. But either way, I love that. I love to be able to be there for somebody who maybe doesn't have somebody else to lean on. The hard part for me is, is the reverse, for me to call on somebody when I'm in need. And um, this past Friday, I want my daughter Laurel, who's 18, uh, technically an adult, technically, uh, <laughs> called me, and she was at school, and she felt really bad. She was sick, and she was going to go home from school. Well, Eric and I were in Oklahoma at a conference, and I said, okay, uh, go home and lay down and take some medicine. I prayed over, and she did, and so later she started texting me throughout that day telling me how awful she felt, how she had cold chills, and she was in pain, and my first instinct was that, well, I just need to go home. I just need to go home and make sure she's okay. Um, except for that it's Laurel, and Laurel tends to be a little bit on the dramatic side. This is something she would readily admit to you. She'll tell you that her Google search history is full of WebMD. Um, so I thought, well, before I, I up and leave the conference and go home, let me see if there's somebody who could just go and check on her. And so I thought of who I might call on who could go and, and be the mom to my daughter who's homesick, and so I called Pearl. Pearl's had some recent nursing uh, experience, and so Pearl went, and she checked on Matt, on Laurel, and she uh, brought her some medicine, and gave her some soup, and things like that, and it turned out Laurel was going to be okay, <laughs> um, after all, but as Jesus hung there suffering in a greater way than you and I could ever imagine, at a time where you think his focus would solely be on his heavenly Father, or if he's at all like me, solely on himself, thinking, poor me, why is this happening to me? He was thinking of those 
who he had a relationship with. He was making sure that they were taken care of. He was still serving them. If Jesus needs people, then so do you. Don't neglect the relationships in your life. Amen? Amen. The fifth saying on the cross that I want to talk about today reminds us that Jesus uh, suffered on the cross as a human being. In his anguish, he remained aware that the prophecy of, uh, found in Psalm 62.21 had yet to be fulfilled. And it said, they get, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, the prophecy is fulfilled in uh, John 19, 28, 29. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a, a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. You know, at this time, the world saw Jesus Christ as defeated. But when he said, I thirst, that was actually a victory cry. Uh, if, if we look at that verse again, it says, uh, uh, it says, uh, uh, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Knowing that all things had been accomplished, Jesus knew he had fought the battle and he had won. You know, one of the strongest evidences in our life that Jesus can do what he promised is the fact that he fulfilled everything that, uh, was, uh, that uh, uh, was foretold about his life. You know, thirsting is also a spiritual matter. We can find in the Bible another time where Jesus was thirsty. Uh, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, he said, Whosoever drinks of this water will thirst again, uh, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give them shall will never thirst. But the water I give them will be, uh, become a fountain of water springing up in everlasting life. You know, the world understands this need for thirst. There's an advertisement on TV now that features... Uh, gentleman by the name of Jonathan Goldsmith, and you've probably never heard of that guy, but uh, uh, he's the uh, most interesting man in the world. Now, you know who I'm talking about. And once the com uh, commercial ends, he looks right into the camera, and he says, stay thirsty, my friends. Now, the world, uh, like, the, like the woman at the, at the well, we were all thirsting for something that the uh, world could not satisfy. You know, the ultimate thirst quencher is not that uh, Dos Equis beer that Jonathan Goldsmith is, is selling. It's, it's not Gatorade that says it's the ultimate thirst quencher. It's not Sprite whose makers urge you to say, obey your thirst. Here's Jesus' take on, on thirst comes from John 7, 37 and 38. It says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
uh, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from the, his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The ultimate thirst quencher is the Holy Spirit. It's not found, uh, it's not sold at the local Kroger, and it's not found in a bottle or a can. You know, it's found in making Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, the, the woman at the well, she was really no role model. Here, uh, here's a woman that was mixed up with the wrong crowd and a woman that had quite a reputation. You know, she had been married five times and she was living with a, hus- uh, with a man that wasn't her husband. But we're told that she left her water pot to go tell people about Jesus. Now, today, you may be taking inventory of your own life, and you might find that uh, there's some water pots in your life that you should have left behind. You know, some of you may be going through a crisis. I don't know. Uh, And you might feel like you're kind of on a desert island all alone without any hope. But you can put down your water pot because Jesus is suffering on the cross. uh, You have life and hope and truth through Jesus uh, you can put down your water pots because Jesus is alive and well Jesus became the water of life for each of you Uh, you know he walked in your shoes so you can walk in his Palm Sunday, I'm going to keep it holy, okay? (laughs) Oh, Lord. All right, so I have the awesome privilege of uh, the sixth saying of Jesus on the cross, and it comes from John 19.30. But before we get to that, let's go back a few days prior in Luke 7.1, and Jesus encounters a Gentile, and this Gentile is a centurion, a soldier, and he has a servant that he loves. And uh, he sends a group of Jews to Jesus. He says, basically, hey, can you come and heal? I hear, hear that you're healing. Can you come and take care of it? And he's getting closer to his house, and he sends another servant to Jesus. And the message is basically this. He says, Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would come to my house. So just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus stops, and he actually says to everybody around him, wow, we haven't found anybody who has this much faith. Jesus now doesn't need to go any further. He says the word, and the servants heal. So as he's walking back, what do you think he was wondering? Where do you think his mind went to? Was he thinking about this, John 19.30, the most powerful words that he would ever speak? I, I arguably think he was. I think he was also thinking about the time that he spent in the temple and constantly would look up and see this massive curtain that separated man and God. We jump forward now to the ninth hour. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he utters the words, It is finished. He probably cried them out, it 
is finished. Everything that held us away from our children that we love, all the penalty of sin that separated them, it is done away with. Just as he said, he held on to that last word, I thirst, because he was making sure all of it was done. Sorry, got a little ahead of myself. Sin's penalty basically was a curtain, a separation from God. Every year, the high priest would have to go and do a sacrifice, and they never got to say the words, it is finished. That sacrifice was enough. Never once. And then, in fact, they'd have to do this sacrifice monthly, weekly, and for some of them, like Pearl, daily. (laughs) All right, I got a little in there. (laughs) Hebrews 10, 12 says it this way. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But it is finished. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat at the right hand of the Father. That's what was finished. Oh, I still got a minute, so I can go into my extra. Let me tell you one of the benefits of what he finished. And this is what I love. Um, In Matthew and in Mark, they both say the same story. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Since that is finished, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. It is finished. Come boldly to his throne. Come boldly. Jesus paid a a high price. Give him his reward. It's you. It's all of you. He wants all of you in his presence daily, monthly, weekly, yearly. I don't know why I did the backwards, but Um, One perspective that we can take away from this is it's no longer a sin condition, but it's a grace obsession. It's a, I can't, but he did. It is finished. Praise God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. All of these have purpose and meaning. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. All of these have purpose. All of these have meaning. Everything that Jesus said at that cross. And isn't it interesting that the sixth saying was, it is finished. When did God finish his work of creation? On the sixth day. 
The scripture says in Luke chapter 23 and verse 44, then the sun, 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So from noon to three o'clock, things went dark. Then it says, then the sun was darkened. That's interesting. We understand why the earth would go dark, but the sun going dark is interesting. This was not a lunar eclipse either. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, say loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. I wonder why Jesus said it loud. He's suffocating. That's what you do when you're being crucified. You're gasping for every breath that you can get. How does he muster up the energy? Why does he muster up the energy? To, why doesn't he just whisper it? Or why does he say it at all? But he yells it. He declares it loudly, the scripture says. Why? Why is he saying it loud? Because to everybody that was there, they were looking upon him like Isaiah wrote. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. They saw him as cursed by God. Because the scripture goes on to say in Deuteronomy and then later said in Galatians chapter 3, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So they all were thinking he's getting his due. He's cursed of God. A cursed man doesn't have the right to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He has some other destination according to everybody else that's there. He's to go to that prison where the disobedient people go. And yet, he's declaring to all of us as the way, the truth, and the life, this is what is really happening. That though I knew no sin... Yet I became sin. Without ever committing a sin, I became that. And in that exchange, I became that and you became what I am. The sun was darkened, the scripture says. The sun was darkened. It's like the heavens had to reflect what was going on here because really the whole universe is centered around Jesus. He's the center of it all as our sun is in our galaxy and our solar system, so he is the center of everything. And that son who does represent God's son even went against its own nature and became dark as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. And in that hopelessness and in that darkness of being forsaken by God. There is no more hopeless place to be than forsaken by God. He as a man hanging on that cross, forsaken by his God. Innocent of all the charges, yet credited by God. Condemned by God. Received the wrath of God upon himself reached down into his innermost being 
that realm that we know as faith. The only thing that we have to hold on to when there's nothing in the natural to hold on to. You know, the scripture says, Paul says, remember that at that time you were Gentiles and you were without God. You were without hope and without God in the world. Without God is without hope. And we already knew that he was without God because he said it. Why have you forsaken me? So he doesn't have that hope to hold on to that he's been forsaken. What what does he have? What, What can he possibly do? All he can do is remember that God is just and God is faithful and God will make sure that those who have, who have been done unjustly, that will be made right by, by the just God. And that God is faithful. And so in the beginning of this statement on the cross, the first thing, he says, Father, forgive them. And then now he cries out as a man that's forsaken. He doesn't call him Father. He says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knows that fellowship has been cut off. But now he's reaching further into this realm of faith that knows when you don't know. It sees when you don't see. That God will respond to. Just as Jesus responded to everyone who came to him with faith. Whether they had a right to it or not. So he reached down within himself and grabbed a hold of a faith confession. With no reason to hope that God would even hear him knowing he was forsaken. Jesus uttered the greatest statement of faith that was ever ever given by any man on planet earth. Falling headlong, as it were, into hell itself, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he ended in faith. And you know what? He was right. That's exactly where he went. That's exactly where he is now. Initially, he didn't go there. Initially, he went all the way down to bring the captives out. But the scripture says he ascended into heaven and is seated now at the Father's right hand. When you don't have anything else to hold on to, remember this moment. When Jesus, against all hope, as his father Abraham, against all hope, believed God and declared and called those things that be not as though they were. Remember that. Faith is the substance of those things that are hoped for. It is the evidence of those things you cannot see. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for these things that we've learned from our Savior who mercy so was so merciful and gracious to us that he laid down his own life. No man could take it from him. He just allowed them to participate in him laying down his own life. And he said, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to bring it back up. And we thank you that Christ died for our sins. And that Christ was buried for our sins. And that he rose again the third day for our sins. Hallelujah. And now today we have that access to God. That veil was torn and you made a way for us. It is finished. We are forgiven. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. That every good thing in our life comes from you. 
Lord, not only were you looking out for your own mother there on that cross, but you were looking out for that sinner too. Just to know that, that, we all, that we all can see just how precious we are all in your sight. Good and bad and ugly. You'll take any of us. You'll take all of us. Because you paid for all of us. Thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for your blessing now upon all these that are here today. Lord, that they would be strengthened in faith, strengthened in hope in God, knowing that it is never over. There's always hope. It's never too late. There is always hope because we have a God who is on our side and we have a Savior, a high priest who is seated into the heavens, in the heavens and who is making intercession for us right now, our mediator. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us. And now we who were once without hope and without God in the world have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com.